Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Ruth, Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Ovid by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Chechaniah, and his brothers, and at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations The word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that is preached to us. As was mentioned earlier, my name is Nick Bratcher, and I'm your RUF campus minister at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Welcome again to the first Sunday of Advent, a season, as John mentioned earlier, that has historically been practiced by the church uh, throughout the centuries as We longingly anticipate Christ's second coming by remembering and celebrating his first coming. Uh, I will say, admittedly, uh, when many of us think of Advent, we might actually instead think of other things beyond the church calendar. We might think of a wine of the day, uh, little trinkets kind of thing, or uh, you might think um, of the Christmas season in general as being just a time of Uh, great generosity or good cheer. But what I want to uh, call us again to today is that as we anticipate Christmas this year, we should really focus on Jesus's first coming, the good news that that is. In Matthew 1, 1 through 17, our text this morning, we are actually told of how it is that Jesus came to us. Uh, in the form of a genealogy. And I got to say, even as I read it, uh, I was reminded of why as a kid I used to groan if my parents ever said, let's read the Christmas story. I'm like, fine, but not the first part where there's just name after name after name. Uh, if you're a kid here, you probably feel the same way. 
this is not the fun part of the Christmas story, right? Where are the kids and the animals and the shepherds and the fun stuff? Where are the angels? This is, why would, why would Nick do this to us? Uh, that might be you thinking this morning. Uh, but what I want you to realize is that these names, in fact, do tell a story. They are the backstory that predates Jesus' birth Uh, If you're a fan of Star Wars, then you actually recognize the importance of a good prologue and backstory. Uh, Those films all start the same way, right? You know, dun-dun, the John Williams score comes on, and there's the yellow text that starts floating up the screen. And they tell us all about where our beloved characters have been in the meantime to give us an understanding of what's been going on and uh, where we're dropping in in the story. And that scrolling prologue helps us to make sense of the story that is to come. Well, if we're willing to listen this morning, Matthew here in chapter one wants to communicate to us a story, a story to help us make sense of Jesus's birth and all that follows. That story will tell us at least three things since uh, they're outlined in your bulletin too. That story will tell us three things about how Jesus came to us that first Christmas. Jesus came as a king, Jesus came with a past, and Jesus came as planned. If you're a note taker, uh, that's where we're headed this morning. Um, let's, let's pray before we dive in uh, to the passage. Lord, thank you uh, for this time uh, where we can uh, read a bunch of names, uh, but they're not names to you. They're in your word. Uh, And as we said, uh, this is the word of the Lord, and it's the good news that's preached to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, it would be that. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, let's dive in the passage and consider our first point. Jesus came as a king. Look with me at verse 1. Let's look at verse 1. Matthew affixes three titles to the name of Jesus, right? Christ, son of David, and son of Abraham. Now, in modern Christendom, right, uh, Christ has essentially become like Jesus's last name. Uh, But the construction there, as elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, could actually be rendered Jesus the Christ. It's a title. Christ is a title, and it means anointed one. Right? That's why we sing a song like Hail to the Lord's Anointed. It's uh, just the Greek version of, of that, uh, that word, anointed one. And to be anointed is to be set apart uh, and empowered by God for a task. In the Old Testament, prophets like Moses were set apart for the task of speaking God's word to his people. Kings were anointed to rule over Israel. In calling Jesus the anointed one, Matthew is informing his readers that Jesus has been given a specific calling by God. The two titles that follow Christ uh, tell us exactly what that calling is. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, these are are more than just uh, a couple of big names that Matthew wants to highlight ahead of Jesus's genealogy. Matthew singles these two, these two men out apart from the rest of Jesus's family because there are certain expectations about these two men, certain expectations about 
these two men's sons, their lineage based on covenants that God had made with these men. A, uh, covenants uh, are basically binding agreements that, uh, to, between two parties. And uh, the short and simple definition is this, that they are more relational than any contract, right, uh, than any sort of agreement, uh, but they're more binding than any promise, right? Sometimes we renege on our promises. Sometimes we don't come through and contracts tend to expire, but this is an enduring promise that God makes. Abraham's covenant is found in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It was in the reflections section of your bulletin if you want to look at it. But while Abraham is essentially living in pagan Ur of the Chaldees, God calls him out, sets him apart, and tells him to leave his land and his family and promises that he will make a great nation of his lineage and that one day that lineage, that family, will bless all the peoples of the earth. But how? Well, the answer is the second title uh, given to Jesus through a son of David, right? We sing about this in in our hymn, Hail the Lord's Anointed, but in 2 Samuel 7, 16, God covenants with David, promises David that one of his sons will one day sit on a throne that God will establish forever in a kingdom without end. Now, we may take for granted, right? We know the whole story, so we may take for granted that these two promises come together, uh, but that, or that Abraham's lineage, right, would bless the whole earth, and that David will have a son who will be the king uh, as God's own son. But if we allow ourselves some imagination for a moment, uh, for a first century audience reading Matthew's gospel for the first time, Matthew is doing something really striking here and weaving these two promises together, right? They become one unifying promise fulfilled in a single person, in Jesus, whose kingdom will bless the whole earth. By by starting it this way, Matthew is subtly announcing that Jesus has come as the king that they have been looking for that has been on the hearts and minds and lips of the Israelite people for thousands of years. They have been waiting for this person. There's this scene in the the movie, uh, The Sandlot, where the protagonist, Smalls, realizes that he, uh, oh, sorry, realizes that the great baseball hero, the great Bambino, is actually the same person as Babe Ruth, whose ball he had, uh, whose signed autograph ball of Babe Ruth, he had actually knocked out of a park and into a neighbor's yard and lost it. Uh, he exclaims, when he finds this out, he exclaims like, oh, you mean that's the same guy, right? Well, if you were reading this for the first time as a first century Jew, we would be tempted to yell the same. Wait, the seed of Abraham and the seed of David, this plan to bless the whole earth and this king, it's all in the same guy? Yes, uh, the King Jesus has come in his birth, and he is establishing a kingdom of peace. And uh, the reality is we sometimes can miss this reality that Jesus comes as as a king because we think about um, the song like Silent Night. And, you know, we make little mantelpiece nativity scenes, and it gives us the impression that this is all a very cute thing, a very warm and fuzzy thing. And, And I will say in some sense it is. 
these things are appropriate. But the reason that Jesus' birth is warm and fuzzy, the reason that it inspires warmth and peace relies heavily on the fact that Jesus came as this kind of king, comes to us as this anointed king whose rule shall know no end. God has put skin in the game. And this means that when Matthew unpacks the events of Jesus' birth over the next two chapters, it's not simply a fun anecdote. It's not a cute scene for a Hallmark card. He's signaling to his readers how this king came to them. This is how the king arrived, and he will put an end to all sin, all pain, all injustice. The incarnation of God is Jesus declaring war on alien intruders into his creation. Christmas is a time of peace and thankfulness because Jesus came as a king, as this king. There is security in that. And, it, uh, and isn't that really, I mean, if we think about it, isn't that what we need to hear in 2020? That we have a king on the throne, the son of Abraham and the son of David. Now, I will say this, even as I say that that should be reassuring, uh, there's been a statement that's gone around in the interwebs, uh, that I have seen at least, that says uh, we shouldn't tell people that Jesus is king, that Jesus is on his throne, that that somehow uh, signals uh, privilege and maybe even spiritual abuse, that proclaiming Jesus's kingship, what it does is it papers over the hurt that people experience, that it says your hurt doesn't matter Nothing bad's going to happen to you because Jesus is king, even as some people are experiencing maybe p- police brutality or injustices of other kinds. Uh, instead, uh, yeah, the thinking kind of goes like this. When I proclaim that Jesus is on the throne in 2020, despite coronavirus, despite uh, who is in the Oval Office or who is not in the Oval Office, when I tell you that that is the reality that is before us, what I might be, uh, what could be tempting to see in that is that uh, my own, honestly, white privilege is uh, allowing me to overlook the pain that people of color feel, that families who have lost loved ones feel. To say that Jesus is on the throne regardless of these things is to overlook pain and suffering. And quite frankly, I'll say this, that is a very wrongheaded understanding of Jesus's kingship. Right? Because the king has come, what I would say is that your pain, whatever it has been in 2020, right, your pain matters more, not less. More, not less. Because the king, this king is on his throne, sin will be punished. Because the king is on his throne, we can trust that no matter what happens to us, right, there will be resurrection and restoration when we die. The reality of Christmas is that our king is here for our pain, in our pain, through our pain. And he is in control in the midst of it. That is hope. Let's not rob Christmas of its rightful joy and peace. But here's the question. How do we know that he's that kind of king? Right? How do we know what kind of king Jesus is? How do we know that he is in control and that he reigns in the midst of all circumstances reigns over sin and over death. Well, that brings us to our second point. Jesus came with a past. Look with me at verses 2 through 16. Look with me there. It, it might seem weird to us 
maybe even impossible for some of us to be uh, without at least the help of like Ancestry.com or something to be capable of tracing one's ancestry back thousands of years, 2,000 years. Uh, But it was important for the Jews of Jesus' day to be able to do that, to know their ancestry. The Jewish people set apart to serve God were not supposed to intermarry with Gentiles so that they wouldn't worship other gods. And so family lineage became very important uh, to signal uh, one's, uh, to demonstrate one's purity and devotion to God. Uh, The Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, was actually in charge of this. They kept documents that would track all the family lineages in Israel. And uh, when a Jewish contemporary of Jesus in the first century, Josephus, when he writes his autobiography, he starts the same way Matthew starts, with his own pedigree, right? Naming his Jewish pedigree all the way back into the times of David. Uh, Herod the Great, uh, the Roman appointed king over Israel at the time of Jesus' birth, was actually so embarrassed by his own half-Jewish status that he had, uh, he ordered all the documents that the Sanhedrin had, ordered them to be burned so that no one would have uh, more of a pedigree than he had, right? Uh, what, what's not surprising, it's not surprising to find a genealogy to begin Right? For Jesus to be the king that Matthew has claimed, he would need a Jewish pedigree, as God had promised David and Abraham. What is surprising about this genealogy, what is surprising about it, is who's in it, is who is included in it. Uh, for brevity, uh, we could just focus on the four women that are listed. Uh, first, uh, the women included are noteworthy, mostly because they're present at all. Uh, this is very unusual for genealogies of the day of the first century. Uh, Women had no legal rights, uh, could not own property, and they couldn't actually even testify in a court of law. Uh, A popular Jewish prayer that men in the first century would pray went like this, God, thank you for not making me a slave or a woman. So low was their opinion of women. But God does not think of women this way, right? He does not think women are of little consequence. Here they are in Jesus' family bringing Jesus to us, bringing our King to us. Secondly, the stories of these women are plagued by sin. What's surprising is how much sin is in this list, and I'm not even going to, I'm not even talking about the men who, there's a litany of kings in here who did some really horrible things, including uh, sacrificing their own sons to other gods, Uh, worshiping other gods, just horrible, horrible things. But the women, uh, they have their own stories plagued by sin. Tamar, her husband, uh, ends up dying an untimely death and without having an heir. And so she, right, like I said, cannot own a property and is in a particularly vulnerable place, is supposed to be helped by her father-in-law. Uh, the custom of the day would be her father-in-law would give her a brother of uh, the husband that she lost so that she could have an heir and be protected. Instead, her father-in-law uh, it lies with her and conceives, she conceives sons, two sons, by him instead. Um, Rahab was uh, a prostitute from Jericho, Uriah's wife. Bathsheba commits adultery with David 
and this results in David murdering her husband to cover it up. Uh, Ruth, maybe the lone moral standout of this uh, group, was nevertheless a Moabite, not a Jew, and therefore was supposed to be excluded from God's covenant people uh, before her first husband actually left Israel in disobedience uh, for Moab and died an early death with no heirs. Uh, What is striking is really how God worked with such vulnerable, lowly people despite so much sin. It ultimately previews the great victory of the cross and the empty tomb that God used sinners to put Jesus to death to save sinners. When we look at Jesus' family, it's easy to see the message, God can redeem anyone. God can redeem anyone, can use anyone for his purposes. That is the kind of king Jesus is. He is one who redeems uh, before moving to Milwaukee, I, uh, I worked as a youth uh, intern. I worked with a youth group, volunteered with them some too. And um, uh, every year at Christmas, uh, we would play uh, like, oh, what's it called? A oh, white elephant. We would play white elephant. Essentially, you, you know, pick a gift and then somebody can steal the gifts and all that stuff. But uh, of course, if you're playing with teenagers, what this... Uh, essentially devolved into was that the kids would all bring terrible gifts and it was just one giant prank, right? You just open up terrible gift after terrible gift uh, and, you know, body lotion that smelled like feet and uh, used sports equipment, just terrible things. And it was awful. And one year uh, I opened a half eaten jar of pickles. That was my gift. Uh, and, And for the record, not even bread and butter pickles, like dill pickles. It was gross. But suddenly, in the last turn of the game, when everyone was doing the swaps, the last like round, uh, this girl actually decided that she wanted my pickles and took them from me, and in, I got to pick a new gift. And when I did, it was a five dollar uh, gift to uh, uh, gift certificate to Chick Fil A, right? Uh, Now, that might not seem like much to you, a $5 gift to Chick-fil-A, but for a poor seminarian, this was like striking gold, okay? Uh, This is what Jesus has accomplished as our king, in a nutshell, right? That just as uh, that girl took my half jar of pickles and gave me a Chick-fil-A gift card, right? So, like, in a much more cosmic and, and deeper and greater way, Jesus has taken our sin our ugliness, our half-eaten jar of pickles, taken that and was crucified and our sin was judged on the cross and his death. And instead of our half-eaten jar of pickles, we get a Chick-fil-A gift card. We get his righteousness, his status before God. And we have a relationship with God that is restored. God can redeem anyone. What this lineage shows is that God does not give up on the people he loves. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe the message of Christmas that God has come to us, that he would do anything to love you, to be with you? It's it's yours. Uh, This this grace that, that God puts on display in this story, it's actually on offer for you as well. I don't know uh, what you've been through this week. 
uh, how short you may have been with your family as you decorated the Christmas tree. Uh, maybe it was just me um, being short uh, and me about that. Uh, sorry, Maddie. Uh, but this genealogy, right, what it does is it preaches good news in the midst of our pettiness, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness. Uh, grace is here and on display. Uh, I encourage you to take that this morning, to know it deep in your soul. But if Jesus is really king, right, if he's really king and he really does offer this kind of grace to us, this life to us uh, in the midst of his own death and resurrection, uh, when is he coming to restore everything? Right earlier I said uh, that he cares about justice, that he cares about um, peace and harmony, that this king was meant to bless all the earth. Well, I don't see a lot of blessings sometimes, right? Where, where has he been? Uh, I know he's reconciled me to God and, and he's working in reconciling us to one another, but why hasn't he brought peace everywhere, right? Well, this brings us to our third point that Jesus came as planned. Look with me at verse 17. This verse uh, might seem a little strange to us. Why is Matthew so obsessed with the number 14? <laughs> And more than that, if you're brushed up on your Old Testament history and your lineages, you'll also note that Matthew has skipped a number of generations in order to make this kind of fit, right? Uh, there were not exactly 21 generations from Abraham to Jesus. So is Matthew confused or worse, lying? Well, no, by no means. Uh, for one thing, the skipped generations were really common in genealogies of Jesus' day. Uh, ease of memorization in a time where things weren't written down a lot. Uh, sometimes you would just skip a few generations knowing, like, they're in there. Uh, they're written somewhere. And you would just have, uh, you, know, a, uh, you know, skipped a generation or two. Uh, and for another thing, in Hebrew, each letter of the alphabet represented a number. Uh, and... Uh, when you take the letters of David's name and you add them all up together, you get a, a number, which is 14, right? The sum of all these, uh, the sum of all of David's letters in his name is, is 14. And so Matthew is trying to communicate something to us in that, right? Uh, what is it? What is Matthew communicating to us in that there's 14 and David's name is 14 and well, at the very least, this is what Matthew is doing. He's breaking down Jesus's lineage into the three uh, historical periods of Israel up until uh, Jesus's birth, right? The, the account of uh, God's people leading up to their greatest king in David, the decline of that kingdom after David, and then the exile of Israel as a nation. Jesus, right, therefore, comes to usher in a new period of history uh, that will center entirely around his life, his death, and his resurrection. One that started when the other periods were complete. The other periods ended and Jesus's began. And of course, only God knew when those were completed. Only God could have known that the exile was over. Only God could have known uh, that it was time to send Jesus. And Matthew gives us the sense that it happens exactly when it's meant to, that there were 14, 14, 14 generations, and Jesus comes 
precisely when he means to. When history had run its course as God had planned, Jesus came to us. Paul gets at this same idea in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Uh, He says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus, essentially, for both Paul and Matthew, right, he comes as planned at the fullness of time, and he will come again as planned. As I said earlier, the the true nature of Advent, as John has mentioned, the true nature of Advent is actually to spur us into longing for Jesus' second coming. That's why we're celebrating his first. No, Jesus has not yet righted everything in our world. There is still pain, there is still sin, there is still death. As Jenny Erickson taught a, a Christian author who was left a quadriplegic after a diving accident, as she put it, and it's also in your reflections, on this side of eternity, Christmas is still a promise. Yes, the Savior has come, and with him peace on earth, but the story's not finished. Yes, there is peace in our hearts, but we long to see peace in our world. But here's where we should take heart in reading Matthew's genealogy. Jesus will come as planned. Just as he came as planned in his first coming, Jesus will come at the right time. And when he does return, he will usher in a kingdom of true peace and righteousness. God will judge all sin, either on the cross or on the last day. And if we are not found in him, we will reap what we have sown. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus, the pain you endure here, whatever it's been in 2020 and beyond, right? Everything that you endure, uh, the things that have have been inflicted upon you by other people, the injustices that you experience, those things will be judged Right? They, they will uh, come untrue. All the sad things will come untrue. There'll be no more racial tension in our city, uh, no more body image issues, no more jealousy or betrayal of trust, no more job loss, no more being excluded or picked on on the playground. Right? No more painful breakups, no more divorces, no more disease. Uh, I'd ask if you could picture, if, can you picture that world? I'd ask that, but the reality is you can't, neither can I. What would it look like to not have all those things? It's goodness beyond our comprehension, and even the Bible itself has a hard time explaining it, because it also does it in the negatives in Revelation, right? That there's no more crying or pain anymore. It's hard to tell us what it positively is. It just has to say all the bad stuff isn't there. This is our hope for the future And it is coming as sure as God delivered it on the first coming, delivered on his first promises to Abraham and to David. It will be in his time. It will be in his time, but it will be. Christian, this morning, have confidence, have peace, have hope in the season, knowing that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. We live in anticipation for that day. Let's pray. Lord, uh, Thank you for this good news. Thank you for 